All right, good to be back with you. Uh, it's very interesting to be on the road. Interesting time to travel in America. You have to really pay attention to your maps to make sure you can get through certain cities. Uh, we were wondering last weekend if we were going to be able to get through Austin. I was looking at my Twitter feed on Saturday night, and uh, people were marching down I-35 with spray cans in, in hand, having a, a good time. And, um, you know, it sits right next to the University of Texas, and I'd never seen that before. So that was very interesting because Austin, Austin has terrible traffic to begin with. Uh, at that time of night, I don't know a lot of people were in danger of cars going fast because they're known for their bad traffic jams. In fact, you don't have to even have a ride or a protest to take 130 and go around Austin. It's almost 24 hours a day downtown. You just try to avoid that, that area. But uh, I was watching that, being that that's my alma mater, and that I'm, I grew up in Bubba Land. I grew up in, in South Austin, so when I went to the University of Texas... It was really almost like a continuation of, of high school for me. Also, my brother is a retired police officer, and he recruits for the Austin uh, PD. So just talking to him and kind of trying to figure out, you know, what, what, is, what is going on and then seeing things happening around us. It certainly is a time like no time that I have ever uh, lived before. It makes me question what I believe in and the meta narratives and how valid and what I'm preaching are. Um, I will tell you, you know, I've been thinking along these lines for a long time. It was just several years ago that uh, I was speaking to a, a teacher who is now retired, but twice, uh, or, or just before he retired, he was voted as the number one debate teacher in the entire United States. And twice at Princeton High School, he did what no other debate teacher in the whole United States has done, twice he had three students in the top 100. Nobody had ever done that. And uh, back when I was talking to him, we had a lot more young people now going off to college from our church. And I jokingly, as I was a chaplain over there one day, um, I jokingly said to him, so you're graduating little communists, are you? And this guy has a great sense of humor. Now, listen to what I have to say. And his response was, he didn't have a smile on his face. He said, there's nothing little about them. There's nothing little about them. I think I told you that not long ago I was in the, uh, when I've been a chaplain, I like to go to the in-school suspension and the person that teaches at in-school uh, suspension, they've coached for the Dallas Cowboys, a, a several Division I schools, uh, had a son that was like All-American High School, and uh, he's black, been around the world in college sports and pro sports, settled down here. And uh, the last time I went to visit, several months ago, we were, we were talking, and it was just loaded with students in there, and he said, you really need to pray for these kids. You really need to pray for them. He said, they don't know anything about the Bible. Their parents didn't go to church. They absolutely don't go to church. They just don't have any narrative, no understanding of some of the things that you and I 
believe in and talk about it and fellowship over together. You need to pray. You need to pray for them. And I do. I think one of the most important things in, uh, you know, probably is youth uh, evangelism. And I don't know that any of our churches do a great job at that that now. Most of our churches here in town, at one time they were packed with a lot of uh, high school students, but that has uh, dwindled down. And uh, most years it looks like when we do a baccalaureate service, it keeps going down in, in attendance. But that's reflective of Christianity across the United States as we keep looking more and more like Western Europe and, the, and attendance is going down. If we were a stock... Man, it would be in the sell category. The analysts would say, sell, sell, sell. You guys aren't making a profit. Wouldn't be the first time in, in, in history. So kind of a crazy time, and it just so happens that, uh, you know, I, my job is to reflect on things from the theological point of view. Because that's my whole life has been dedicated to that, my studies and, and my work. And so that's, that's my reflection. That's my meta-narrative is trying to think biblically through the story of the Bible. You know, the Bible has all kinds of literature in it. It has, you know, poetry, and it has, you know, a literal history, and it has a narrative, and it has letters, epistles, it has a lot of different types of literature in it, but but foremost, I believe it is the spiritual history of humankind. It's the spiritual history of humankind. And so, anyway, with that, let's let's read Exodus 11. I think the Exodus. It's so interesting. So many of these things have happened since we started Exodus in January because. Exodus is by and far the primo number one overarching text of liberation theology, which is the grandfather of uh, black liberation theology and LGBTQ theology and feminist theology. The whole story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go and marching him to a new land of liberation and emancipation, that, that, this is the primo uh, text. If there's any theology backing some of these movements, this is where they go to, and we happen to already be there. I find that very interesting, right? You know, so if, if we, we, we actually should talk about this and not shy away, because we were there first. We've been there a long time. Now somebody wants to borrow Pizza of the Minute narrative, so, and some of those are actually my colleagues. I actually have colleagues who are radical feminists. I actually have uh, uh, colleagues who would be in the forefront of some of these, these marches. I don't agree with them, but we've been friends and known each other for a long time. And we've broken bread together. Seems like now more often we're disagreeing than we used to. But let's read uh, Exodus chapter 11, verses uh, 1, 1 through 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt one more plague, and after that he will allow you to leave this place. 
And when he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Now announce to the people that men and women alike should ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses declared, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl behind the handmill, as well as the firstborn of all the cattle. Then a great cry will go out over all the land of Egypt. Such an outcry has never been heard before and will never be heard again. But among all the Israelites, not even a dog will snarl at man or beast. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these officials of yours will come and bow before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you, after that I will depart. And hot with anger, Moses left Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. Now this passage is really couched at the headwaters of our modern day communion. Our modern day communion, if you trace historically the meaning and where it comes from, it would go back to uh, particularly uh, chapter 10, 11, 12 of Exodus. This is where the Passover comes from, where the death angel or the dark hand of God in the night is going to, the final last plague to break Pharaoh's back is going to be the death of the firstborn. Now, Moses was told that on his way to Egypt a couple years earlier. God told him in Exodus 4, things, verse 22, that you were to go to declare to Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son, and if you don't let him go, I'm going to strike down your firstborn. So that we are told that early uh, in the book of, of Exodus. But this is the headwaters of where our communion comes from. So they are told uh, uh, that this edict goes out, that the firstborn is going to be struck down, Moses, he meets with all the elders of the Israelites and says, okay, here's what the Lord says. we got a unique plague. This isn't like any of the other plagues. You guys have noticed that all the plagues have been falling over on that side of the tracks. You know, all the hail and all the locusts and all the flies and all the, the, the gnats, all these, the boils. Everything's been happening over here in these neighborhoods, but over here in the, the Jewish ghetto, over here in Goshen, you guys have been free from any of those things happening. But I'm here to tell you, this last final plague, it's for everybody. Everybody is going to be under this plague. So do I have your attention? And they were like, yeah, I think, yeah, well, you've had our attention now. We believe you. You know, part of these, the, these plagues were to revive a people's heart who, whose faith, they were, they were like a lost people in a lost land for 400 years having yet to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God gave Abraham of land, seed, and blessing. 
where they were to become a great nation and a light to the world of what it was to be as like one nation under God. And that got postponed under God's sovereignty. And here they are. They grew up to a, a people of two million people. And they end up becoming the slaves of, of the greatest power of that day and age, the Egyptian, the Egyptian Empire. And so Moses tells them, this plague, you're going to have to take precaution because it will strike you as well. Well, what do we do? All right. You need to take a lamb about a year old without any blemish. And for several days, you're going to take this lamb into your house. Treat it like one of your own, like the family pet. You know, you got the lamb at the dinner table running around. But then four days, you're going to take that lamb and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to take that blood and you're going to wipe it over your door, on your doorposts. You're going to mark that because that night... My presence is going to come down and the firstborn of every family in Egypt, every, every Israelite man or woman. How many here are firstborns in your family? In our little Sunday school class, we had three out of, three out of uh, no, four out of five were firstborns. So you'd be, you'd be struck down unless the blood of the lamb was posted over the door to spare. And so they, they did that. They were told to take that lamb and to roast it and to eat all of it and also to make your bread unleavened. Don't use any yeast. Make it, you know, flat bread because we want this to be uh, an everlasting symbol and something that you practice annually to remember your flight out of Egypt because the next day after this, you will be leaving Egypt. And not just for a three-day festival. You will be emancipated. You will be liberated for good. And so that's the headwaters of our communion. Just, just by the way, if you trace it back in the Bible, it was almost 2,000 years prior to Jesus' institution. We up the meaning of it. Because in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. We still need a Passover protection of the wrath and anger of God, not just systemically for corporate sin, but more importantly, for our individual sin. You know, it's interesting that Jesus does make references, I think about it in the New Testament, he does make references that there will be some cities or towns who will be judged. There will be whole nations that will be judged, but more often than not in the Bible, it is the individual who is judged and that gets to have an opportunity to speak their peace before the Almighty as to, okay, let's weigh the balances here. Which way's it tipping, you know? Let's play that video. Oh, man, I don't want him to play that video. You want him to play that video? And so 
in this story, you know, Moses has gone back and forth and back and forth to Pharaoh to let my people go. And they had him pinned down. They had a whole industry around the, around the Israelites as their little minions, as their, as their drone worker bees. Never going to move up to the middle class, just always going to be stuck down there, expendable. And uh, we're not really interested in the heritage of your, your religion. And so Moses comes to break uh, all of that, that you might say systemic or corporate sin. But also you will notice in these texts as we've been going week to week, God is holding the head of that system personally responsible. Just like in a family, mom, dad are responsible raising their children. It's not the youth minister, it's not the pastor, it's the parents that are responsible for teaching spirituality to their children. That's the number one people who are responsible, going to have to answer to the Lord. Oh, I'll just give them that choice when they grow up. My gosh, grandparents, parents, whatever, uncles, give them something, at least your children when they grow up, give them something that they can compare to. At least if they know about Jesus in the Bible, they have something they can compare to. I am... uh, I'm thinking of creating a new civilization. I'm going to call it, I don't like Chaz. I got a better name. Some of you have been, to, you've been to Seattle. I've been to Seattle. 20 years ago, it was in, in Seattle and downtown. People were breaking windows and doing stuff. And we were in a really nice hotel at like an insurance convention. I thought, what are all these people doing running around in downtown Seattle? I'm not kind of scared to go down there in the street at night. Uh, But, you know, if you follow the news, they've kind of like roped off and barricaded a certain part of the city. And this is going to be kind of a a new form of of, uh, civilization or an Occupy protest, you know, situation. But I'm thinking of doing one right here in Princeton. I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it Todd. (laughs) And I'm recruiting right now. And all who believe in justice, all who believe in wiping away ethnocentric thinking are welcome. All who believe in the commonality of all persons are welcome. But our, uh, but our primary litmus test to enter this community, however, is you're going to have to agree that we have a terrible, terrible injustice. It is the mother of all sins. You're going to pardon the pun and I'm going to tell you why. And that is this. That there is original sin that has been overlooked in all of America. And you can't argue with me on what this is because the statistics are true. And that is that 93.2% of men are incarcerated while only 6.8% of people incarcerated are women. Now that's an injustice. That, that is wrong, wrong, wrong. I, I want to see edicts in the state of Texas. If you arrest one man, you're going to have to grab one woman. It's going to have to be equal. I'm sorry, 
but to live in Todd land, you will have to agree that that is original sin that everything else is based upon. And you can't argue with me because I can, I can prove that, that that's true. I can prove it. Okay? So if you want, anybody want to join me on that? Any guys? What's fair is fair. Now, this is, this is not, these are rhetorical questions, AJ, right now. Okay? Anybody with me? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you want to see a preacher tart and feather, just stick around after this, okay. Of course, I'm using satire. And of course, if you study biblical theology, biblical theology means you are trying to build a theology based on the entire narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You're studying what other theologians have thought. You're studying the traditions of the church. You've read those books. You're trying to build something that it, it, where it fits together. And over and over, one of the main themes through the Bible is called original sin. Original sin means that because of Adam and Eve's sin, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that through Adam, all died. When God said, if you eat off that fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, they didn't physically die, but they, they spiritually died. And suddenly their relationship with God changed. And unfortunately, all of their offspring were cursed with that. And that curse, of course, was a, a, a cause to try to get their offspring to reflect and look back up to God and to cry out for mercy and redemption. And after that fall, the rest of the Bible, most of the Bible, is about redemption. It is a story of God reaching down to humans to try to lift them up out of the mire that they create when they want to be completely independent from God. So the sins you commit is not the worst crime, is that you are by nature a rebellious person against God. That's, a, that, that's, that's original sin. Now, you might be the most hardcore, closet, uh, KKK, white supremacist that even the preacher doesn't know about sitting here in this congregation, but that's not original sin. That is a symptom of your lack of uh, repentance and call on the Lord for forgiveness. Someone else might be a bank robber. Someone else might be a chronic liar or a thief on Wall Street. In other words, Original sin has many symptoms. It's like AIDS. People don't die of AIDS. Of course, now with a lot of therapeutics, they're not dying at all. But in the past, someone would get AIDS. They could die of a multitude of different types of infections and cancers. But what really caused it was this disease that lowered their immunity and made them susceptible to all things. So the message of the gospel it agrees, yes, there's racism. Yes, there's sexual perversion. Yes, there's greed. 
Yes, there are people who are murderers. Yes, there are people who are insolent and hate their parents. But at the core, their first sin is their opposition to God and they don't want to listen to the revelation of God. They're saying to themselves, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. And as I said, what's very interesting in this passage in dealing with Moses, there is a systemic sin, but there also is this individual sense of sin and responsibility, like with Pharaoh, but even with that last plague. I have listened and read to what different theologians have said, and they said that last plague is different in that it required an act of sacrificial covering against the wrath of God, not just for the Egyptians, the oppressor, but the oppressees needed forgiveness too. I thought, wow, never thought of it that way. It wasn't just the oppressor in liberation theology, you divide the world up between oppressors and oppressees. And salvation is not so much eternal life and a wonderful life and Jesus coming into your heart. The heart of liberation theology is we tried that. It didn't work. Look at Latin America. There's no middle class. Unless you were born rich, you're never going to get there. Your piddly little churches are just wasting their time. They're not making a difference. And so in liberation theology, salvation is nothing but the complete overthrow of the oppressors. We're not worried about the end game, about eternal life. We're dealing with just right now. And as Christians, we don't ignore that. We know those things happen. We've been involved in world missions a long time. I've traveled in different parts of the world and, and seen that. So I think it's very, very interesting when we read these texts and deeply think about, you know, what they mean. Uh, but again, they point to institutions, but they also point to the individual and to the families if they did not have the blood over their particular house. The life of the firstborn would be taken. And as I have said, and some of this I know is a little hard to follow, but I've been building a case for quite a while with this, is that when Moses was tasked with moving two million people, he had to first convince them of their identity, of who they were in these great covenants from 400 years ago. Wow. He had to uh, convince them that God heard their cry and indeed did want to emancipate them from being slaves. You know, when slaves came, were brought over here and bought and put on uh, colonial or uh, American plantations, the number one passage I, I have read from black theologians is they would turn to the book of Exodus more than anything in hope for emancipation. So these texts have been combed over a long time and in the history of the United States very, very deep, deeply. But Moses' goal was not just 
liberation from a systemic bondage and the oppression by the private sin of the Pharaoh, but also to build a new civilization, not the land of Todd, but the kingdom of God. And that as soon as they get out of Egypt, what is Moses going to do? God's going to give him new revelation. He's going to give them the law, going to give them the Ten Commandments because they need to know the under they need to know what God's boundaries and understanding and importance is for all areas of life if they're going to become a nation. And they're going to have to reestablish their covenant. They're going to have to understand that there is a fidelity. You have to be true through faith to receive the blessing of God. It's not just give and take with the fellow people around us, but it's also with God. And lastly, he had to create a structural or an identity of God's presence where God was actually living in the midst of them. Of course, then you have the history of the tent of meeting, cloud by day and the fire by night, and the whole priestly system to remind people of this new identity. Now, when we see these protests and riots going on, um, it's important to be critical, critical of yourself, critical of my own beliefs, but it's also important to try to, as a Christian, to bring in your theology. And, you know, liberation theology is partially built on the Bible. But the theology that I see going on right now is not so inter it's interested in liberation but it is not interested in instilling the 10 commandments or the principles of God's law it's actually it seems to be more closely aligned to those humanistic principles that you would find in uh, Maoist communism that the state is God so you get freed Unless you put those uh, principles, godly principles in there, unless you establish and emphasize the great covenants and promises of God as part of your, your liberation, unless you create a structure like the church where you worship the living God and you make people re remember that God is in our midst and sees everything that we do, if you eliminate those last three steps but only emphasize the emancipation, what you're going to end up doing is putting a people under a greater authoritative bondage than they had to begin with. And that's the history of communism. Now, of course, the argument could be made that our government has greatly changed in the last 200 years, and it has. So I don't know where all of this is going, but I'm just trying to think out loud for you what I'm going through and mulling because I still do believe in the power of the gospel. I still do believe that we need the blood of the lamb over our life. That Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was not for naught. He didn't come because a person was just a racist. He didn't come because somebody was just a murderer. He didn't come because somebody was just a rapist. Jesus came because we are sinners and we are capable of anything given the right circumstances. I could be that prison guard that tortures people. I could be the person that decides 
you know, this baby's inconvenient, honey. Let's get rid of it. I could be the person who steals. Jesus died for sinners such as me. Do I need to root out systemic sin in my life or maybe things I have perpetuated through generations in my family? Yeah, I probably do. And the older I get, the more more wider sight I see. Things from my grandfather, things from my dad, things from me. But some of those things are so deeply rooted, I have to pray. I have to get help. I have to get perspective from the Holy Spirit to make a big change in who I am, particularly as a man, to try to make my family a better place, my marriage a better place, the church I serve a better place, my friendships stronger and better. Because believe me, I'm not perfect. But I am trying to follow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I hope you find Jesus Christ intriguing as well. And uh, I pray for all these people I see riding. I pray because I see people, man, they ain't got peace in their heart. I don't quite see the world the way I do. I'm trying to understand what would rile someone up so badly or make them interpret things a certain way. So. If our elders would come forward, let's, uh, let's end in prayer.